welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Disease of Childhood. We're sorry we've not been around for a bit, but there's been so much going on in podcast land. Anyway, we're back. The Archimedes section, as you'll probably remember, is the evidence-based bit of the archives. That's where people have gone out and asked a clinical question. They've then converted that into a search and gone through a variety of electronic databases usually to try to find the best published evidence to answer their question. They've taken that and they've appraised it, considered its strengths and its weaknesses, and drawn it all together in a usually qualitative synthesis to come up with the clinical bottom lines. Now, as this is a clinically derived thing, we make sure that the last bottom line can't be more research is needed. Although it nearly always is that more research is needed, that's not actually that useful on a wet Tuesday afternoon when you're sat in front of a patient. And so this is a very clinically focused style of using evidence to put it into action. We also have a little bit that tries to expand an understanding of what critical appraisal is or isn't. And these are the critical appraisal notes, one of which, on listening to your gut, you'll hear after this sting. Now, what's not being said? Now and then, you will be looking at some research and thinking, ooh, that's interesting, or mm, we should do that, but, but perhaps there's a nagging doubt in the back of your brain. I would encourage you to listen to that voice and reflect. Think about what isn't this research or research paper telling us what isn't being said go and look at your standard structured pico question patient intervention comparison outcomes it's quite likely to focus on the desired outcome so for example in patients undergoing moderate metagenistic chemotherapy does adding olanzapine the intervention to standard antiemetics the comparison reduce nausea and vomiting and, and, and it usually looks on that positive outcome rather than the possible disadvantages. And one of the things that I do a lot in training sessions is to encourage thinking about the negative side effects. And so really what you want is a picou at the minimum. So for the anti-emetic example, perhaps, how about adding the outcome of somnolence or extrapyramidal side effects or overall reduced quality of life? Now, when you have identified your naggering thoughts, the ones that are persuading you that this might not be right, have a think about what you're looking at. For example, if you're looking at side effects, remember that trials are not very good in terms of their size for finding out side effects. And there's also another element within trials that they won't collect a lot of adverse event information, but they choose to present less than that. And sometimes that not reported fully aspect is perhaps intentional on the part of the authors or the company that owns the drug. Ideally, there should be a systematic search for adverse events alongside every systematic review of assessing efficacy. But people and teams that do that are few and far between. It's not an easy task. And so... You need to remember that when you're looking at systematic reviews that are about treatment interventions. Also remember all of the ways in which we don't know things. Either we haven't investigated it or there's mathematical precision based uncertainty around things. So when you are looking at evidence, then don't just think about what's there, but consider what's not being said. 
Now the first of our clinically appraised questions this month is about neonates. It's about a now 32-weeker that was 26 weeks when born, uh, had a relatively okay course as a premature neonate, but now his growth's faltering despite 180 mils per kilo of expressed breast milk plus fortifier. Maybe a bit of gastroesophageal reflux disease, has tried some Gaviscon, hasn't really worked, and the team are considering putting on some Domperidone to encourage the gut to wiggle along a bit faster and tolerate more feed. Now, we all are aware that safety concerns have been around uh, around many of these sorts of agents, Cisapride being the one that was pulled from the market because of it. Um, but Domperidone has also been suggested to increase the QTC interval. And their clinical question is in neonates you're considering opening up the Domperidone window on. Does QTC get clinically relevantly in uh, prolonged rather than just a little bit more uh, in terms of the outcome and they went out and did an extensive search looking at PubMed headline via the EBSCO system and also Cochrane um, dragging down 37 hits from all of that which came up to 21 unique different articles then of those only five of them really addressed the question with others being sort of commentaries and things around these are all relatively small, um, sort of 45 being the largest of them, and looked at a range of babies from those that were indeed prem up to those that were about eight and a half, nine months old. What they found in a variety of prospective measurement studies where they would do an ECG at baseline and then after a short period of time, usually a couple of hours or so, was that Domperidone did seem to creep up the QTC a little bit, maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 milliseconds, but very few uh, individuals, less than 5%, actually had a, a clinically relevant prolongation that is taking it to above the sort of 460 officially long window, and nobody had any rhythmogenic abnormalities. Their clinical bottom line being that this is actually a relatively safe treatment to use. I guess me looking at it, I'd be wanting to do the ECG pre-post and just make sure it was before I sent somebody home on it. Um, but it seems like they've done a relatively thorough examination of a drug that maybe isn't as bad as we thought it was. That was submitted by Paul McDarren Ryan of the University College Cork and Tapas Mondal um, of the Division of Cardiology uh, in the McMaster University of Hamilton, Canada. <laughs> Sticking with the theme of very small babies, but this time ones that appear to be perfectly well and were born at the right time, is Jennifer Beth Salvanos from the Sheffield Children's Hospital in the UK. She reports a event that occurred where a midwife called the paediatricians to come and assess a baby who was very well in the delivery room, uh, latched on, breastfeeding, good apgars, uh, but had been born by an emergency cesarean section for failure to progress. Routinely in that hospital, they did blood gas measurements on the cords and found to have a high lactate of 4.5. There were no risk factors for sepsis, which in itself I think is a small miracle these days. But anyway, there weren't any, no meconium, nothing to worry, and the baby looked absolutely fine. What to do about this high lactate? Well, that generated a clinical question that then went on to be searched through the Ovid interface, looking at Medline and Embase, and drawing down many studies of which one systematic review and four separate cohorts tried to get an answer to this question about what about a high lactate in a well baby. 
As you would probably expect, some of these studies are actually looking more the other way around to say, do poorly babies have higher lactates than well babies? And shockingly, the studies support the idea that if you have a very sick child in front of you, its lactate might be a bit high. Interestingly, people also look to see about the lactate levels that were taken via different routes of delivery and caesarean section itself seemed to make it more likely that you had a slightly higher lactate than if you were born by vaginal delivery. Um, but all of these are raw and unadjusted. They're not saying in a well baby who has a high lactate. The systematic review pulled together data from around 48,000 or so patients across 12 different cohort studies, and it's often the case with these very large things. They all had slightly different outcomes. So the one that might be of most relevance, so for example, the, the lactate gases on the cord to predict the outcome of HIE, um, only dealt with 38,000 rather than 48,000 of the patients with a sensitivity of 70%, but a specificity of 93%. If you put that sort of into what does that mean, um, that means that the majority of babies who go on to have HIE, 70% of them, will have high lactates. Uh, but that doesn't mean all of them by any extent. Now, the most relevant is probably a 7,000-person cohort from the USA that looked to see what a high lactate predicted in terms of a bundle of abnormal or poor neonatal outcomes. And if you had a high lactate, you had a 3% chance of having an abnormal outcome. If you had a normal lactate, you had a 98% chance of having a normal outcome. So only a 2% chance of having an abnormal outcome. That's not a lot of difference, is it? And probably some of that will still be sucked into the idea that you'll actually see very early on which babies are not breathing, look dreadful, not latched on, etc. The upshot of this um, really settles on the issue of why was the test taken. The NICE guideline for peribirth care suggests that cord blood samples should only be taken when you're worried about the condition of the baby and not routinely done. I think because they're not that helpful and actually what they do is raise concern without actually indicating anything meaningful. A survey done uh, around about uh, the turn of the millennium demonstrated that a third of units that responded still did routine lactate uh, cord blood measurements on all of their operative deliveries. And it is the impression of people working around the UK today that it's still varied practice. The clinical bottom line is don't do it. Follow the NICE guideline and don't measure lactates in well babies but if the cord blood has been taken and has shown a slightly high number then we don't know what that means and it doesn't mean to do anything differently for that child uh, as many of my great mentors have taught me treat the child don't just treat the numbers now that's it from Archimedes this month. Hopefully we'll be back next month to tell you more about evidence-based medicine, clinical questions that people have sent in from all around the world. And despite listening to this episode, we do actually like to see things that aren't just about neonates as well. So until next month, follow your track to the Archive Diseases of Childhood website where you can learn how to submit your Archimedes diseases and you'll be hearing about yours hopefully in the very near future. Thank you and good night. <laughs>